to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. I'm proud to announce the sponsor of this week's podcast, Cleovana. Cleovana is a novel gynecologic treatment that increases arousal and sensitivity in the vaginal area by using sound waves to increase vascularity and innervation of the vulvar area. This simple, non-invasive treatment involves no lasers, scalpels, needles, and importantly, no downtime off from your busy life. To learn more about this procedure or to request a consultation with one of their certified and skilled clinicians, please visit cleovana.com. That's spelled C-L-I-O-V-A-N-A.com. Thank you, Cleovana, for sponsoring this week's podcast. I am live from my office at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where it is still, I moved in a year ago, and it's still not really decorated. And I will just blame the, the virus that shall not be named. And I have with me my friend, Dr. Kelly Casperson. She's a board-certified urologist in the state of Washington, and she's also the host of an incredible podcast that if you have not listened to, is an extraordinarily complimentary podcast to this one called You Are Not Broken. And I am so, so excited. I have been on her show. Now she gets to be on my show. And so welcome, Kelly. How are you today? I'm so good. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. This has been a long time in the making. And we are together virtually at a sexual health conference this for the next three, two Fridays. Yep, the Ishwish yearly yeah. educational conference. Now, yes. not just in Phoenix, now virtual wherever you may be. Right. So both of us are taking this extra course uh, from the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. It's a mouthful. So we call it Ishwish. And I know I'm super excited because I have a lot to learn. And even though uh, we are going to be talking more on incontinence today, again, I really recommend uh, Kelly's podcast, You Are Not Broken, because she talks a lot there about sexual health from the perspective of your of your and Kelly, tell us more about your podcast before we get into incontinence. Yeah, well, it kind of birthed itself. It's like my baby because I just kept talking to women over and over in my clinic about sex and they just thought they were so broken and they were the only ones that had these problems. And it's a very isolating topic, right? Because nobody gets taught good adult sex education. And so I just kept saying like, you're not broken. You're not broken. You're not broken. And I'm like, Oh, that, oh, that's the name of my podcast. You're yeah. not broken. Yeah, it is so true. We, it, it, it is so nice for women to know that they are not alone in this problem, whether it's sexual health or, you know, another one, which is leaking urine, that they're not the only ones that do this and or that the, the big idea or the big myth is that there's nothing that can change the trajectory of these problems. Totally. I think they're both taboos, right? They're both big taboos, sex and incontinence. And in the things that, you know, nobody ever told you about having a baby or nobody ever told you about menopause is kind of these things that are, they're way more universal than we think they are. They're, and I always joke with people, I'm like, these aren't personality flaws. <laughs> these are common, common things that happen to our bodies. 
Right. I think there's a huge push, whether it's societal forces or whatever, to think that we we are broken. We didn't do the right thing. We didn't eat the healthy thing. We didn't do the Kegels, whatever it is. And so we're here to kind of clear up some of those things today. Yeah, I think the other thing that happens is in the decades past, there wasn't treatments, whether that's medical, surgical, excellent physical therapists, all the things we're going to talk about. And so the generations in passing it down, women just told women, that's how it is, live with it, deal with it, that just happens. And so kind of society has told us, just deal with it and keep quiet. And that hasn't caught up with the available treatments that are out there now. That Yeah. So let's get into it here. So there are a couple different main types of leakage. Not all leakages, leakage is created equal. So tell the listeners what are the main types of incontinence. So there's two main types. And I think even if you have this information and you're able to bring it toward to your doctor and say, I have this type, is so it already puts you way ahead of where everybody is because you have to figure out what type you have before you can figure out the treatments. Because even though it's both urine coming out of the bladder when you don't want it to, that's what incontinence is or urine leakage, there are different types and they happen for different reasons. So knowing about the two common types kind of helps people understand what might and might not help them. So the most common one is urge incontinence and that's part of the overactive bladder. So urge incontinence is a hyperactive bladder muscle that doesn't kind of calm down and behave how you want it to. It's going to run your life instead of you running its life. Happens way more in menopause as the estrogen levels drop in our bodies and in our pelvis. And we don't fully understand why. Is it a muscle issue? Is it a nerve issue? Is it a nerve and muscle issue? Um, Is it a hormone issue? So the researchers are still trying to figure out why overactive bladder happens and happens more in middle life and beyond. So that's an unwanted urge to go to the bathroom and leaking on the way to the toilet or leaking with running water or leaking with a big sudden urge out of the blue without warning. That's very bothersome to people. Number one, it's urine leakage, but number two, they don't, they can't kind of prepare for it coming. Unlike the other type of incontinence, which is stress incontinence. Still very bothersome, but women usually know when that urine's going to leak because it's a force or a stress on the pelvis that pushes urine out. So cough, sneeze, laugh, the classic trampoline. So they at least kind of know that they're going to be doing something that expels urine and they can kind of, you know, not laugh instead of laughing. That's the saddest thing. Women are like, I just can't laugh anymore. And I'm like, oh Oh. my gosh, that's the worst. So. Makes going to like a movie, not that we go to movies in 2020, but sounds like it makes going to a movie just a horrible experience. Totally. And so the the stress incontinence is because of the pelvic floor weakness. Now the pelvic floor weakness, it just can't hold in the force that goes on the bladder. Bladder's just being a balloon, right? So a force on the balloon and the pelvic floor can't resist or overcome that force. So childbirth is a big one. This the laxity that comes, the stretching out of the fascia that happens. Also hormones, decreasing estrogen. We lose the tissue integrity of the urethra and the pelvis. So anything that weakens that pelvic floor um, being overweight uh, is more force on the bladder also chronic cough anything that's kind of uh, excessive strain can lead to stress incontinence Hmm. those are really so those are like the main two thinking about if you have urge or stress is a great place to start what do some women have both 
one third of women have both. So 30% of women have both. So that's called mixed incontinence. So they can say, oh yeah, I leak with laugh, sneeze, and I also leak on the way to the bathroom or with running water. The classic ones like the key in the in the house or the garage door opening, kind of those triggers for the, or if the bladder sees a toilet, sometimes it wants to go. So it's that overactive bladder picture. So what I do when a woman comes in with mixed incontinence is I talk to her about what bothers her the most because treatments that we have for one might not help the other one. In my experience, the overactive bladder urge incontinence tends to be more bothersome because that's more the without warning leak, mm -hmm. which is way less in control than, hey, there's a trampoline and I'm going to choose not to jump on the trampoline or I'm going to choose not to exercise. Yeah. So certainly we want to talk about treatment, but before we get there, we talked a little, little bit offline about, you know, why women don't get treatment. But let's just say someone has this idea that, you know, meh, I just, I don't have, I don't want to treat this. What, what are the consequences of either not treating it or not thinking about it or just living with it? What do those consequences look like? So if it's mild, there's, there's really no consequences as far as danger to your health, shortening your lifespan, not any big consequences like that. But a lot of women will kind of live less of a life. And what I mean like that is, hey, I used to love running and I don't do that anymore. Or I, I love to go out to lunch with my girlfriends, but I need to know where all the bathrooms are. And so I don't do that anymore. And so really a consequence is kind of like a narrowing or a, a closing down of your life because you are living to protect that bladder and bladder leakage. So that's kind of you know mild to moderate. In the severe, I worry about skin breakdown, uh, you know, urine's an acid, right? So if urine is leaking onto the skin or into a diaper pad product, it can be damaging to the skin. It can lead to more infections um, and really kind of an embarrassing smell and just, you know, issue for you or the caretakers. Interestingly enough, incontinence is one of the top reasons that elderly women end up entering nursing homes mm. because it's so difficult to take care of that at home. What an important point. I always used to say, and I think I got this from my mentor, Dr. Thacker, but she used to say three things, there's three things that will let land you in a nursing home. Uh, uncontrolled incontinence to the level you just said, right? Um, Alzheimer's and uh, an osteoporotic fracture, like a hip fracture. Three things that tend to certainly go a little bit less discussed than maybe cancers, heart disease, et cetera, right? And that is a huge thing. Say that one more time. Incontinence is one of the top reasons that lands people in nursing homes. It's so hard to take care of it and for caretakers to take care of it. I think that is so important. So what about uh, my patients often will just wear liners and say, I'm just going to wear liners for the rest of my life. What do you think about that? If it's mild and it's not affecting your life too much, maybe you don't want the side effects of treatment. So to me, I and the doctor never says, hey, it's time, right? It's really quality of life and driven by the patient to be like, I don't want to wear these liners or these liners are irritating. A lot of liners have synthetic fibers and, you know, scents in them. The other thing, pads are expensive, mm -hmm. right? So pads, and especially when you get into the adult diapers or the Depends, they're very expensive. And so it's actually, there's a cost to doing nothing. Right. There is in a way. Exactly. I also have a lot of patients who tell me, and I really want my listeners to perk up because I'm interested what, what Kelly will say, but I have a lot of patients who tell me they were liners every day for insurance. You know, they're not even wet most of the time. What do you think about that in conjunction with what you just said? I think if it doesn't bother you, 
you don't, you know, it's, it's not too big of a deal. There's actually some great, I'm going to plug a urologist here. There is a, uh, a, a underwear that is now developed for incontinence and it's called ONDR underwear, uh, created by a urologist and they're not that much more expensive and they're so eco-friendly, right? You're not throwing stuff away every single day that has a plastic lining in it and they work really well and you kind of don't have that embarrassment of needing to slap a pad on. So if you're going to for mild just in case, look into the underwear so you don't have to go through those pads. That's a great idea. Another brand that I recommended for a while, I'm going to check out yours. Uh, the one you just recommended was Dear Kate. Have you ever heard of Dear Kate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they kind of have that like wicking sensation in the area where you need it. And I, I actually have a pair of these. I had a patient bring them to me once and I wore them when I was pregnant because I would have so much stress incontinence because of that child sitting right there. So tell me again what the ones you just said. I just want to repeat it one yep. more time. It's underwear, O-N-D-R, underwear. And that's created by Dr. Luban, who's a urologist based in Oregon. Cool. So she designed it. Yeah, she's super cool. Have her on your podcast. She's awesome. Awesome. Talk All right. more about stress incontinence. Um, I think, you know, the other thing about the underwear is, is the eco-friendly part of it, right? And then the other thing for incontinence is to make sure you're not using menstrual products. So menstrual products actually have a different absorption profile than an incontinence one, which is more upfront. So if you are wearing a pad, it might be more uh, protective if you buy one specifically for incontinence or have underwear specifically for incontinence. It's, it's different than periods. That's a really good point that I actually didn't. That's great. What do you think about the poise and process? I, you know, I always tell my patients that I'm totally biased because people don't come to me and tell me they're wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Right. Um, they can, they're, so they're, they're basically like odd-shaped tampons. They go into the vagina and they act as a support, again, for that stress incontinence, right? So they say on the product they're not designed for overactive bladder because that's more muscle and nerve. Um, so it kind of just lifts up and supports the urethra, adding a kind of a counter force for the stress incontinence they can be very drying because with tampons you have a period that moisturizes them and helps with them coming out but with incontinence you don't so it's a very dry product that sits in your vagina if you're already struggling with vaginal dryness perimenopausal postmenopausal vaginal dryness it might not be the right product for you unless you're counteracting that with a vaginal estrogen or a vaginal moisturizer so that's one of the biggest things i see is just it's uncomfortable because it's dry you don't have that period to kind of buffer the dryness Interesting. All right. I want to start asking about treatment. I'm interested in estrogen's role, but I'm going to say that to the end. I want to go over bread and butter treatments and happy to start with urge incontinence. What are, you know, when someone, I always say to my patients, everyone has a different threshold for when they cross their quality of life, you know, whether it's more bad days than good days or more leaking than not, or just kind of how you said with that narrowing of your quality of life and narrowing of the options that you have on a daily basis, start to get to where it's so bothersome and you th- start to think about treatment. What are some of the, the treatments for urge incontinence? So the, the bread and butter, the going down to super basics, I always say this is the only one with no side effects is pelvic floor physical therapy. And so when you ask that question about like, even if it's mild with just a pad, should they do, you know, when should they do? It's like pelvic physical therapy can really benefit anybody, even if you think your problem is mild and there's no side effects to it. The only side effect is a little bit of time, but I think women aren't, women sometimes need to be pushed to prioritize their own health. It's like, why wouldn't you take an hour to make your body stronger? 
stronger. Like your body deserves that. Right. So, so I think about physical therapy very different than a woman who might be like, I don't have time or what's the, I, I think of it as like, of course you're going to help your body be as strong as it can. The great thing about pelvic floor physical therapy is it helps both overactive bladder and stress incontinence. The pelvic floor physical therapists are trained in bladder retraining, urge suppression, pelvic floor muscle strengthening. And a lot of women, their misperception about that is that it's just Kegels. And it's so much more than, more Kegels. than Kegels. It looks at your habits. It looks at how much, you know, all the bladder triggers that you're drinking, like, a, you know, cups of coffee and alcohol and spicy food and kind of all those things that aggravate the bladder and then your overall muscle strength uh, as well. So pelvic floor physical therapy is absolutely wonderful for any sort of incontinence. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. I have a few episodes with my good friend, Melissa Gallo, episodes back on pelvic floor physical therapy. It's probably time to do another one because it is such an important tool in the toolkit. Yeah, 100%. And they also help, you know, I have a lot of women who have other things too going on with their pelvis because this is all just pelvic health. So whether it's pain with intercourse, fecal leakage, anal leakage, all of that's very common after childbirth as well. The pelvic floor physical therapist can kind of tune everything up because they work with the whole pelvic bowl and floor. Yeah. And it's such a positive experience for so many women. If you're listening, thinking that sounds absolutely crazy. I promise I will dedicate a whole another podcast soon on pelvic floor physical therapy, but it's really not this, you know, very invasive uh, thing. It's really very, very, very helpful. So I will come back to that. I promise. Cause this is such an important point. So important. I always tell, I just on the physical therapy, I tell my women, I prefer them going to see a woman. I prefer them seeing somebody who's specially trained in the bladder and the pelvis. So I don't, I always say, don't go to your neighbor's cousin who's the shoulder guy. Right. Like that's not your, the problem that you have. Go to the expert for it. Herman and Wallace um, is a national training for pelvic floor. So if somebody's like, I don't know if there's somebody near me, they can go on Herman and Wallace and find pelvic floor physical therapists. Oh, perfect. I will link that below. So if anyone listening wants to search by their area, that would be really helpful. After pelvic floor physical therapy, what is next? So second line therapy, first line's pelvic floor. Second line is anticholinergic medications. So those are, they've been around for a very long time and there are many, many of them now. So, you know, brand names and generics would include oxybutynin, ditropan, tolteridine, trospium, Vesicare. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of them. They're all kind of cousins. How they work is they decrease the spasticity of the bladder muscle, but most of them are not specific, meaning they have side effects in our body, most commonly being dry mouth and constipation. They actually caution using these medications in older people, and by that they mean 65 and up. There is an association or a correlation, not a causation, right, with dementia and falls. So I really try to get my women off of these medications. Number one, it's a pill, so it's not really fixing the problem. Mm-hmm. Number two, there is to me, it's just too risky to have people on medications that might cause side effects that, again, land you in a nursing home. So I, I don't love them. Most insurances will make us do at least one medication trial before we can get into the super cool stuff, which is third-line therapies. Um, mm. But I don't love them. And the studies show that they don't last long. In a year, uh, after a year of being prescribed these medications, less than a third of women are still going to be on them. Mm -hmm. Basically, they don't work. Or number two, they can't tolerate the side effects. Yeah. 
Oh, there is one other, there is one other drug class, um, which is called uh, Mirbetric is the brand name. Mirbegron is the generic. It's a beta-3 agonist, I believe, if I'm pulling that from my brain properly. And it works by having the bladder kind of relax more and store more. So letting you hold a little bit more. You can't have it if you have uncontrolled high blood pressure, which is pretty rare. Um, insurance coverage and cost to me is the main limiting factor of those meds. So not a, not a super big fan of meds, but they're there because, you know, they have to be and they work for some people. Um, so that's, that's my med. I'm not a big med proponent for overactive bladder. I want to hear about this third line. What are the cool things? Oh, the cool stuff. Well, the cool stuff is what urologists do. So of, of course, that's what I love. So Botox has been FDA approved for urgent continence since 2013. So this is not a new use for Botox. Um, Botox is works amazing. 30% completely dry rate, 70 to 80% significantly improved rate. And what it does, just like how Botox relaxes muscles in the face cosmetically, is it relaxes the bladder muscle. So it decreases that urgency frequency. Women classically with Botox or onobotulinum toxin A is the generic and probably what I'm supposed to say. Um, <laughs> But women classically say, I just have more time to get to the bathroom. You know, so if you're like, I, you're trying to rush it to the bathroom or you just can't get the pants down fast enough, that's where Botox really shines is it just gives you a little bit more time to get to the bathroom. Um, I tell people that it's just like going to the dentist. It's like twice a year that you have to get Botox in your bladder. It's not surgery. Um, we do a little bit of numbing medicine. Uh, it's just jelly in the bladder and the injection takes about three minutes. Wow. I think for people who've gotten Botox anywhere else, it hurts less than Botox in other places. That's nice. That's nice. That's so cool. Okay, so that's really great. That's really great. Awesome. What else is there, yeah. if, if anything? So, yeah, so there's two more things to talk about as far as third-line therapy right now. One, sacral neuromodulation. So basically, again, giving that bladder's nerve something else to listen to. So it kind of, it basically puts the instructor back in. So the bladder is not this little kindergartner running its own life. And so we just say, hey, let's test the nerve. Maybe it's a nerve problem. So sacral neuromodulation is a permanent implant that goes into the bladder nerve down in the S3 foramina uh, below where the spinal cord ends. And so that's permanent. There's two companies in that um, field now that are FDA approved and on the market. And so you can get that permanent implant or you can also in the ancient Chinese acupuncture world, there is a bladder meridian down by the ankle. And so it's called peripheral tibial nerve stimulation or PTNS. And you can actually get stimulated in the ankle, which is also connects to the bladder nerve. So that's why that works for the bladder. Interesting. So is this pretty invasive if it's permanent or how would you describe yeah, it? it? It's actually, so it's, what's so cool about the, the sacral nerve one is we only try it for a week. We do it completely temporary. It's just a test, kind of like an EKG is a test, right? Mm -hmm. And then if it works, you get the full implant and it's kind of like getting a colonoscopy. So it's just a little IV anesthesia. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not that big of a surgery. The biggest incision is just to put the permanent battery in. But the nice thing about it is there's no pills. There's no, you know, you don't have to come in twice a year. And it really just works until that battery kind of wears out in about five years. They just came out with a rechargeable option um, for people who want a rechargeable option. I'm a little biased. A lot of my women want to just forget about it and not have to pay attention to having to charge something every week. Yeah. So I bit more proponent of the permanent one just because it actually is less work, less equipment for you to do than to if you had to recharge something. Nice. Interesting. Cool. Anything Super else? Cool. 
No, it's just that because it's such a big problem, that's why there's companies in this market, right? Yeah. And so as far as the peripheral, the peripheral tibial one, there's more and more companies coming out as far as wearables, being able to do it at home, getting a permanent implant down in your ankle instead of in your low back. So the, there will be more and more cool things coming out. Uh, interesting. All right. We'll have to have you on again in a few years to see what else is new. So let's jump to uh, talking about treatment options for stress incontinence and the difference between the two. And I can already see how you mentioned in the beginning that knowing which one you have is so helpful because the avenues are looking pretty drastically different already. Totally. I mean, I have patients come in and they're like, my friend has Botox. She loves it. I'd like Botox. And I'm like, well, you know, when does your leaking happen? And she's like, when I run. And I'm like, well, that's stress incontinence and Botox doesn't work a darn because Botox doesn't add strength to the pelvic floor, right? It just calms down an overactive muscle. So really knowing what you have, a lot of people come in loving that their friends are so happy on Botox and then they find out they're not a candidate because they have stress incontinence. So stress incontinence is a support issue or a weakness of the pelvic floor. So you can do pelvic floor physical therapy and the most common surgical intervention is a sling. And they've done studies, and in the beginning, those two are equal in efficacy. So people who did the physical therapy, it worked just as well as the people who got the sling. Over the long term, the sling wins as far as success rate. Why? Because people stop doing their exercises. Right. Right. So if you're, a, if you're a good exercise student and you love it and you want to fix it naturally, by all means, it's very effective. You have to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. um, there are other things besides slings. You can do urethral bulking where you kind of just silicone inject the urethra to create more of resistance. It's not long lasting. So for my young, healthy women, I'm like, this isn't something you want done to your urethra every six months. Mm -hmm. um, the old school surgeries before mesh were bigger incisions, were kind of like a C-section where we'd take your own fascia and sling it up. That's called an autologous rectus fascial sling. Uh, much more invasive. So the gold standard these days is the mid-urethral sling with mesh. Outpatient surgery takes about 20 minutes. You notice right away that, that you're, you can cough and you can sneeze and you don't have a leak. Success rate's right around 80, 85%. Um, mesh got a really bad rap in America. Um, they kind of went after the big companies more for prolapse, but slings kind of got pulled into that whole firestorm. Slings are very safe. There's always risks of implants. And I mm -hmm. tell people that just like if we get a pacemaker, if we get a knee implant, anything we do to try to make our bodies healthier has side effects. Mesh is no different, but the risks are actually very low. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between a prolapse and incontinence? So prolapse is a descent of the vaginal wall. Uh, kind of a weakness of the fascia, right? And behind that wall can be uh, vagina or uterus, bladder, or rectum. So depending upon where your bulge is, it might be called a cystocele if it's a bladder. It might be called uterine prolapse if it's the uterus coming down. It might be called a rectocele if it's the backside that's pushing into the vagina. So women always say, my bladder's falling out, which bl my bladder's my favorite organ. So I always say, don't pick on the bladder. The bladder wasn't like, let me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> the vagina is weak or the fascia around the vagina is weak and so it descends and it can't support the bladder so behind that bulge is the bladder but yeah. the bladder wasn't like i'm out of here <laughs> I, that is so funny 
<laughs> I love that so much. Yeah, I always hear, you know, questions on should I do the mesh? And I always put my hands up as, you know, I am not the right person to ask. Um, but if, you know, it's nice for people to hear from a bona fide urologist about the safety of, of it. Yep. And I would just say talk to somebody who does them um, and who does a lot of them because they're going to be the ones who are then good at discussing complications or side effects and stuff like that. Getting your medical advice from your neighbor's cousin is not good <laughs> in general, but especially when it comes to mesh, right? Like, right. and that's the internet bias too, of like, you aren't going to see all the women who are now can be on the trampoline with their grandkids and who can run the 5k. They're not typing on the internet. Like, just so you know, my sling's awesome. Mm -hmm. right? right. Like all, all you're going to get is, is negative bias on the internet. So pick your, pick your audience. I know I'm right there with you in the parallel conversation about hormone therapy and really just myth busting and making sure people can still choose for themselves, but really having good evidence, not the scary lawyer commercials that they see about mesh that I see. I mean, they're, they were really, they're really pervasive. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Any it's, it's not fair. It's not. it's not fair to all the women who need help. It's not fair to all the women who have been helped. Uh, and it's not fair as far as balanced, unbiased knowledge that women want. Yeah. Any other, any other stress incontinence options? Not much. Now, there aren't really any pills to build strength, right? But there is a nice correlation. There's a nice study showing that hand grip strength in a woman is correlated with her, her, the likelihood that she has stress incontinence. And where that comes from is her overall muscle mass and strength in general. So just physical fitness in general, losing weight can decrease incontinence significantly, mm -hmm. um, and just being fit. And now people are like, well, I can't be fit because I've got bladder issues, is finding those low impact activities where you can build that muscle strength because it does help the body. Mm -hmm. And what a nice also circular plug for pelvic floor physical therapy, because you're going to go there, you're going to work on that pelvic strength, your core strength, your back strength, and really slowly build up that ability to just feel stronger again. Yeah. Yep. And even for the super fit ladies out there, it's amazing how you can have kind of a little bit of weakness in one area and not really realize it until you have an expert be like, oh, did you know? And so even if somebody's like, I'm super fit, what am I going to get out of it? It's like, it's amazing how our body can compensate for areas of weakness and how we can still improve. Yeah. So I want to kind of end this on asking if you know anything or research or anecdotally about either adding vaginal estrogen or patients who've taken systemic hormone therapy on if this helps the bladder, doesn't help the bladder. I know personally there's been a lot of mixed things, but I'd love to have you weigh in on what you have seen. Yep. So there isn't for as far as systemic hormones go, oral estrogen, there's not a lot of data that it decreases UTIs or helps incontinence or even helps all that much with vulvovaginal atrophy or what we call genital urinary symptoms of menopause, which I like literally have to take a sip of water when I say that because it's, it's such a mouthful. It is such a mouthful. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> excuse me. So systemic hormones don't help that much with the pelvic and in explaining that to people, it's because when you take systemic hormones, it gets prioritized, right? So it says, I need to go to the bones, I need to go to the brain, I need to go to the heart. The pelvis is really the last stop on the train. And so it's just not enough to get there. So vaginal estrogen, however, really strengthens the urethra, prevents urethral prolapse, helps keep the, the vagina supported. And so 
That's good for pelvic health. And there is some data, especially with urge incontinence, overactive bladder, that vaginal estrogen can be helpful. Interesting. We probably need more research studies on that, I'm going to safely assume. Yeah, I actually don't think it's FDA approved for urge incontinence. It's Mm -hmm. more anecdotal evidence of, hey, especially the frequency urgency, which totally flares in the postmenopausal woman. I I had a woman that was getting up twice a night to pee, nocturia is what that's called, or that's, that's a component of overactive bladder. We put her on vaginal estrogen, she sleeps through the night. So, you know, that's interesting because I see the same thing as well. When my patients are on a vaginal estrogen product, they say they wake up less in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. And so I wonder, you know, if that is related to the vaginal estrogen or or just the improvement in the vaginal health or yeah. I'm not sure. I have no well, idea. Well, it actually gets to the bladder. So as, as a urologist who looks in bladders all the time, I can look in somebody's bladder and see good estrogen changes because it's actually, you can see it in the trigone of the bladder. And the postmenopausal women don't have that. So I think that vaginal estrogen really does improve bladder health because the bladder has receptors for estrogen and likes living in an estrogen world. Yeah, I think that is so interesting. I, I, I know it's not FDA approved as well. And I always tell my patients, you know, and uh, if you have, since I always ask about any types of incontinence, it may help. We shall see. And that's kind of where I leave it with them as well. Beautiful. Wow. This has been so, such a nice, clear broad overview of the differences between the the kinds of incontinence that start to affect women, particularly, of course, in my world at midlife. But I I certainly, certainly assume you could talk about incontinence uh, for uh, women who are not yet midlife or menopausal, which is a a potentially different conversation since I wouldn't be leading that one. Um, But I really, really, really thank you so much. Any other sort of final thoughts, summaries, closing remarks you have on this? topic for women? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think going back to the beginning of our conversation is the the data says that women wait on average seven years before they talk to their doctor about their bladder incontinence. So I just say to women, don't be a statistic, be sooner than seven years. Get in and talk to somebody. Well, we know that listeners of this podcast are so proactive and I really cannot recommend you've got to jump over and uh, listen to uh, Kelly's podcast, You Are Not Broken, because it's, again, so complimentary. And uh, we love so much that all of our listeners combined are really increasing the downloads and the numbers and proving that women in midlife listen to podcasts and share and disseminate amazing information. So please go ahead and listen to over to uh, Kelly's podcast, You Are Not Broken. And thank you so much for being on the show. We don't want our patients to be a statistic. We want women to know that they can talk about things like sexual health, leaking urine, uh, hormones, aging, aging gracefully, and that there's a safe, wonderful place and a haven of evidence-based information here on my podcast and on Kelly's too. Well, thank you, Kelly, so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. I will have you back on again. There's so many things I know we'd love to talk about. Of course, sexual health is such an important topic. Even things like prolapse, I realized I've never chatted about on the show and all things that women want to learn about, if not for themselves, for their friends or for their family members. So, well, have a wonderful rest of your day or 
evening and everyone thank you so much for listening in please leave this podcast a star a review if you like this share it with your friends disseminate it as much as you can that really helps the algorithm so that more women see this podcast and i will see you again next week bye everyone